Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Broadcasting from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan, Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Glad you're with me. There's much to talk about. As you no doubt have heard by now, there was uh, an attack in Israel exactly 50 years in one day after Israel was caught off guard during what's commonly called the Yom Kippur War. It's happened again. Hamas militants invaded by land, sea, and air, fired thousands of rockets into the country. They are now threatening to begin executing Israeli hostages taken in Saturday's attack. And um, we also now have some numbers. Uh, Numbers have been going up. Uh, It's now up to 900 people who are reported having been killed. Uh, That's on the Israeli side. And then on the Hamas side, it looks as though Israeli counterattacks have killed 560. That's been the number over the last few hours. So you're looking at close to 1,500 people killed, not to mention the thousands uh, uh, who, who have been wounded and who are casualties. We're going to take two segments today, one in the first hour, one in the second hour, to look this over. We've got some outstanding guests, so stay with us. Also coming up today, uh, we're going to be joined by Tom Doran, who has worked on hundreds of environmental and infrastructure projects. He was president of Tetra Tech MPS. He was an adjunct professor of engineering at Lawrence Technological Society. And we're going to take a look at Laudato Deum, uh, this most recent apostolic exhortation by Pope Francis, and uh, try to pick it apart and see how it stands up uh, to what is commonly uh, understood in uh, climate uh, change circles. That's coming up. Also, uh, the there's a relic of St. Jude Thaddeus. It's been venerated in Rome from ancient times. It's now going on pilgrimage in the United States, making stops in 100 cities. It's in Detroit this week, and so Father Carlos Martins will be joining us. Uh, he's leading the tour. And then today is the day we celebrate the life, sanctity of St. John Henry Newman, uh, really one of the Church's most influential thinkers of the last few centuries. Uh, Dr. Michael Dauphiné from Ave Maria University joining us to look at uh, conscience, faith, reason, and the development of doctrine in John Henry Newman. But first, today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News for Monday, October 9th. It's the Feast of St. John Henry Newman. Today's news is brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. War is raging on between Israel and the Palestinian militant group Hamas after its fighters launched coordinated attacks on Israel over the weekend. The vice president of an Israel-based volunteer organization describes what it's like on the ground. Well, it's been 48 hours plus, and it's been the most uh, terrifying and stressful uh, event that we've experienced here. Since Hamas launched its attacks, the death toll has risen to nearly 1,200, with thousands more injured on both sides of the conflict. At least nine Americans are among the dead, according to the State Department. In his Sunday Angelus, Pope Francis condemned the violence and called for peace. 
Oil prices are rising after the sudden eruption of war in Israel. Analysts are closely monitoring developments as Iran, a key backer of Hamas and an OPEC member, has expressed support for the Palestinian attack. Experts believe the impact on oil prices will be limited unless the conflict expands to a larger regional conflict. At least 2,400 people are feared dead after a pair of powerful earthquakes rocked Afghanistan. The first quake was a magnitude 6.3 and hit western Afghanistan Saturday. That was followed by a 6.1. A family of German Christians who lived in the United States for years in order to continue homeschooling their children has received a stay of deportation for one year after fears that they would be forced to leave the country. Tennessee Senator Marsha Blackburn announcing on her website that the families received the good news. The family left Germany in 2009 due to a law that effectively outlawed homeschooling there. They learned last month they were facing potential deportation, the reasons for which are not clear. From your Ave Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Prime Minister, uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said earlier today that this war that's been forced upon Israel by a horrendous enemy would be uh, taken up by Israel. Citizens of Israel, he said, we are in the third day of this war. We are fighting for our home and for our existence. His comments came as Israel's military said it has taken re- taken, retaken control of all communities around Gaza uh, more than 48 hours after Hamas launched a surprise attack. Joining me right now to talk about this, uh, what is a new, really new war in Israel, we've got uh, Dov Waxman. He holds the Rosalind and Arthur Gilbert Foundation Chair in Israel Studies at UCLA, where he also directs the UCLA uh, YNDS Nazarian Center for Israel Studies. He's the author of several books, including The Pursuit of Peace and the Crisis of Israeli Identity. Uh, Dov, good to have you with me. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Let me begin by saying uh, what might be obvious by now. Uh, Was this attack timed to be uh, to the day, uh, uh, to the Yom Kippur War from 50 years ago? Yes, I think the the timing of this attack, the the fact that it took place just one day after Israel um, um, observed the 50th anniversary of the outbreak of the Yom Kippur war was not a coincidence. I'm sure that uh, in choosing that that specific day, uh, Hamas was sending a, a particular message, knowing that, that uh, how traumatic the 1973 war was. Um, and so I'm sure the timing isn't coincidental. And so the, what would be the message? Uh, that war was horrendous. Israel took quite a hit. Uh, is there something more that they're saying in the timing? Yes, I think the well, there's a there's a couple of messages that that, that they as they seem to be delivering. Uh, first of all, um, that uh, the status quo um, as they see it is unacceptable, just as the status quo uh, was for Egypt and Syria uh, prior to the outbreak of the 1973 war when Israel controlled the Sinai Peninsula, which it had captured in the 1967 war, and the Golan Heights. Um, Egypt and Syria went to war in 1973, um, at least Egypt did, uh, to um, really to force Israel to the negotiating table, but to make it clear that uh, for all of Israel's military strength, even though that Israel was much stronger militarily than the Arab uh, sides than Egypt and Syria, that wouldn't deter them, that they were still willing to go to war and that they could still inflict 
uh, pain on Israel. And in, in that respect, I think Hamas is, is delivering a similar message that despite mm. Israel's military strength and despite its uh, growing relationship with countries in the Arab world, Hamas has the ability and the willingness to inflict uh, great pain on Israel. And of course, the other uh, message I think here is that they have the ability to surprise Israelis, that this was something um, that um, was not expected, just as the attack by Egypt and Syria in, in October 1973 wasn't expected, uh, was a shock to Israelis. So um, Hamas have delivered another shock, in fact, a much greater shock even than in 1973 to Israelis. And I think, so in that sense, there, there's a kind of a psychological element to this, a kind of psychological warfare, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, as well. Oh, let me ask a question related to this. Uh, it's reported that Hamas is also threatening to begin executing Israeli hostages taken in Saturday's attack uh, from the Gaza Strip, and that uh, they plan to broadcast these ex executions. Uh, a spokesman from the uh, Al-Qassam Brigades, a branch of Hamas, warned in an interview with Al Jazeera that the group would begin killing one hostage for each Israeli airstrike that lands in Gaza without forewarning. Um, is, is that believable? Sadly, it is believable. Now, I wouldn't have thought um, maybe a week ago that it was believable. I wouldn't have thought that Hamas would stoop to such yeah. death. Um, you know, in the past now, certainly, you know, we shouldn't kind of uh, sanctify Hamas. They, they're a brutal terrorist organization. They've been responsible for the deaths of, of many innocent civilians. Um, but I, I, I think, you know, we, in the past, one wouldn't have thought they would have executed hostages. And, you know, they, they held, for example, the Israeli soldier Gilad Shalit captive for many years, uh, but uh, didn't, uh, didn't execute him or torture him. Um, whereas um, this kind of a threat, this is, this is something that one would expect from an organization like Al-Qaeda right. or uh, ISIS. Right. And in fact, that is what ISIS and Al-Qaeda have done. Um, and, you know, uh, analysts generally distinguish between uh, all groups like Hamas, which though are willing to, they're willing to use terrorism, um, have some restraints on their use of violence, or at least we thought they had some restraints on their use of violence. They're willing to use violence against civilians, but not to the same extent and not in the same savage manner uh, and shocking manner that, say, Al-Qaeda and Islamic State have done. But, you know, what Hamas did on, on Saturday, massacring Israeli civilians in large numbers, slaughtering them and shooting them at close range, that's, that's much closer to the kinds of violence perpetrated by groups like Al-Qaeda and particularly Islamic State. And, and this threat is, is also in, on a par with that. So um, I think it's really very, very worrying. It's clearly, um, you know, a clearly what Hamas are doing, they're hoping to use the uh, Israeli hostages basically as human shields. Um, and also to use them as bargaining chips in order to try to uh, obtain the release of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Mm -hmm. we, we shouldn't forget here we're talking about uh, not just Israeli soldiers who have been who are held captive in Gaza Strip, but uh, women and children yeah, and yeah. the elderly. Yeah, no, very important point. Uh, for people who you know, aren't, don't follow what's going on in Israel very carefully, they may wonder... What's the relationship between Hamas and the PLO? 
Well, Hamas is not a member of the PLO. The PLO uh, is the official organization that represents the Palestinians as as, as a whole, the Palestinian nation as a whole. And the PLO um, represents Palestinians all around the world, not just those in the West Bank and Gaza Strip or, in, or inside Israel. Um, but the PLO has really kind of been eclipsed in, in, in some respects in recent years by the Palestinian Authority. Now, both the Palestinian Authority based in the West Bank, headed by President Abbas, President Abbas is also the chairman of the PLO, so there's some confusion there between the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, but Hamas is not a member of the PLO. Mm-hmm. Hamas would like to join the PLO, but um, in fact, you know, there's no love lost between Hamas and the PLO, and certainly between Hamas and the organization that dominates the PLO, which is Fatah, which is Hamas's political rival. Very good. Uh, people are asking about the role of Iran in this. Does Hamas receive ongoing support from Iran? Yes. Um, Iran has long provided both uh, financial support as well as uh, military support, weapons uh, and training and logistical support to Hamas. Um, and it's very likely that uh, Iran uh, would have uh, approved of this operation um, and certainly has expressed support for it. But that doesn't mean that we should jump to the conclusion that Iran instigated this operation uh, or see that or, or assume that it, that Hamas is simply acting on Iran's orders. There's some speculation about that, but I don't think as yet there's any clarity. Israel has officially said they don't think Iran was involved directly in in carrying okay. out uh, the attack. Um, and, and the U.S. government as well so far. So um, it's Iran has, certainly has some involvement because it does support Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is also involved in this and also holds Israelis captives. But I don't necessarily think we should jump to the conclusion and we have to be very careful before doing before reaching that conclusion, because if Iran is directly involved, then the risks of, of actually conflict between Israel and Iran are likely to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, so it's a very, very delicate situation right now. Is anybody speculating on the, the role that the recent uh, intended rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel, did that play any role in Hamas's attack? Yes, that certainly seems also to have factored into the timing of Hamas's attack. I mean, um, you know, on the one hand, I don't think we should see it as direct response to what's uh, the kind of increased uh, U.S. diplomatic efforts in, in, in recent weeks to broker a deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia, because this attack by Hamas was, was months in the planning. Uh, this is something that they must have been planning for quite a long time. The level of uh, coordination uh, of this required months of planning. But, it's, but I think it is very likely that uh, the timing of when this attack took place was partly linked to that because uh, normalization between Israel and, and, uh, and Saudi Arabia isn't just a threat to Iran, which is why Iran would have approved of this attack as a way to disrail the attempt to produce this uh, agreement um, because obviously Iran doesn't want to see any sort of uh, uh, growing relationship between Israel and Saudi Arabia. But it was also a threat to Hamas as well. And Hamas would have, see, would have risked seeing this as a threat to its own interests. And so I'm sure um, trying to prevent that agreement from taking place, if in fact it could have happened, we won't know, you know, was part of Hamas's agenda. And they may well have succeeded in that respect. 
Uh, does the Biden administration um, have a plan to deal with this? Were they in any way complicit in this? Uh, were there failures of intelligence and military readiness on both, uh, well, on Israel's well, part? Go ahead. It, yeah. it, it, it's, too, it's too soon to know what was known by intelligence agencies okay. and whether there was any intelligence information uh, available pointing to the possibility of an attack. Uh, we will find out, no doubt, uh, in in the in the months uh, to come. Um, but it does seem, at least, that the Biden administration uh, focus, you know, on trying to uh, produce an agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia um, dis- may may have distracted them a little bit, or brought, took their attention away from addressing the growing violence inside the West Bank and at the Gaza, at the border with Israel. Um, and that in trying to get, you know, this kind of holy grail of this agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia, that they didn't put as much attention as they needed to on the situation inside the West Bank. Mm. That, I think, is clear, um, and, and the situation in Gaza. And more broadly, um, you know, since the war of May 2021, we've known that this situation between Israel and Hamas can escalate at any time, that it's a fragile situation, that allowing uh, 2 million or so uh, Palestinian civilians to live under blockade for so long uh, is a uh, very combustible situation. And the Biden administration, like its predecessors, really didn't do anything to address uh, that, that the problem of, of, of the suffering of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. What, about 15 seconds. Will this mean the end of Likud's influence uh, just like in 73 meant the end of Labour's influence? I think it's going to be a very, very serious political blow to the Likud and, and especially to Prime Minister Netanyahu. Okay. So more than anybody else, I think his political standing is going to be serious. Dov, thank you so much. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Who may officiate at a wedding ceremony in the Catholic Church? According to the Catechism in the Latin tradition, a priest or a deacon are the Church's authorized ministers who preside over the ceremony and receive the consent of the two spouses in the name of the Church and give them the blessing of the Church. It is the presence of the ministers as well as the spouses which visibly expresses the fact that the marriage is an ecclesial reality. The Church normally requires that the faithful contract marriage according to the ecclesiastical form because sacramental marriage is a liturgical act, so it ought to be celebrated in the public liturgy of the Church. Marriage is a state of life in the Church, so certainty about it is a necessity. 
Preparation for marriage is of prime importance, says the Catechism, citing the example and teaching of parents and families as a special form of this preparation. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I went to Las Vegas years and years ago for one of these cable shows, and and I was uh, shocked to see all these old ladies in their 70s and 80s getting off that plane, running for a slot machine. You don't have a chance to win. They're all fixed. I know, my uncle used to have slot machines. (laughs) EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Ave Maria School of Law is the Roman Catholic law school in the United States. Consistently ranked in the Princeton Review as one of the best and most conservative law schools, as well as pre-law's most devout law school. Ave Maria School of Law provides a traditional legal education while emphasizing how the law intersects with the Catholic intellectual tradition and natural law philosophy. Ave Maria School of Law, unabashedly Catholic, consistently excellent. For more information, visit AveMariaLaw.edu. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. That's realestateforlife.org. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Let me add, uh, following last segment about the Hamas attack on Israel, that Pope Francis and the Latin Patriarch of Jerusalem have called for peace uh, after Israel declared war following this major attack by Hamas fighters over the weekend. Um, the head of the Catholic Church in Jerusalem, Cardinal Pier Battista Pizzaballa, called for a de-escalation of the situation. And the U.S. bishops are joining uh, with them in this call for peace and condemning the widespread outbreak of violence there. We'll have more, certainly, uh, this week as it goes on. Well, last week, one of the big events that we discussed briefly was Pope Francis's release of the apostolic exhortation, Laudato Deum, And uh, this, again, originally was thought this was going to be an encyclical, um, but it's an apostolic exhortation, meaning it's a little less authoritative than an encyclical, but it's still to be seen, and he made it clear, it's to be seen in conjunction with his encyclical Laudato Si. With me right now, to help us, you know, read this, understand it, evaluate it, we've got Thomas Doran. Uh, Tom has worked on hundreds of environmental and infrastructure projects. He was president of Tetra Tech, MPS, was an adjunct professor of engineering at Lawrence Technological University, and is a member of the College of Fellows of the Engineering Society of Detroit. He's also the author of the Tolkien-inspired Toward the Gleam. Good to see you. Good to see you, Al. Thank you. It's been a while. Are you still writing? I am still writing. Yeah. You have to let me know. I don't think I've seen your recent stuff. 
I, I have one uh, in the Ignatius Press queue early next year. Good. We'll talk. Well, let me go, given that with your experience dealing with uh, environment and uh, infrastructure projects, when you read this uh, apostolic exhortation by Pope Francis, what was your impression? First impression. Well, my first impression sort of goes back to my career, and I always weigh in on the environment this way. It's a big, complex subject. And so there are three things that I think I take away from this. First of all, our stewardship obligation to God and our neighbor. And that's right up at the top. Uh, Secondly, however, is context. And that's not a very popular concept these days. Mm -hmm. So context is very important also. And the third thing that I've learned with the environment is it is often this and that rather than this or that. Gotcha. So those are the three big things that I take away from the exhortation and my own experience. Well, let me go to context then, mm-hmm. um, because uh, I agree, context, almost anything that you discuss, you want to have the, the context, the setting in which uh, something is being communicated. What should we know about context relative to this apostolic exhortation? So I think that there are a couple things I would point out. First of all, for me, context starts with the beginning of my career and what water quality, air quality, and habitat health are today in the Western world, especially, compared to what it was when I embarked on my career. We used to talk about being able to walk across Lake Erie. Ah, (laughs) Detroit River. Amazing. We could... We could talk about the Detroit River a lot with a lot longer than you have the time for. Yeah. So the context is in the Western world that uh, the Detroit River, the Thames, the Rhine, all those uh, Los Angeles, the smog, Mexico City, we've made a lot of progress. Yeah. And yeah. that's part of the context. So there are victories that we've seen, yes. progress that we've seen. Um, and does the, does the encyclical... Does the tone of the encyclical reflect that awareness of the progress that's been made? Well, I would give that a mixed review. Okay, sure. Would be my answer to that question. Um, I would have uh, preferred to have seen a little more recognition of that in the context of the conversation about technology. So there's a this or that. Uh, technology can be a good servant. Yeah. Uh, technology contributed to a lot of those successes that we talked about. However, as Pope Francis points out, and technology is not the complete answer right. to all right. of these things either. So um, I would have liked to have seen a little bit uh, more of a recognition, but I also recognize that today climate change is sort of uh, the topic that controls the conversation. Yeah. Water, air quality, habitats, they were very important in the 1960s to 80s, but right. 
they're not on the top of the agenda. Yeah, today. you don't hear as much about them no. anymore. Yeah, no. it's that climate change is now the driving it force is. in environmental discussion. Yeah. Um, he, he he writes that uh, in Laudato Si he had offered a brief resume of the technocratic paradigm underlying the current process of environmental decay. What's he mean by technocratic paradigm? As I understand it, it is a reliance on technology and uh, economic means exclusively to solve climate change and other environmental problems. Mm -hmm. I agree that technology is, uh, is not the sole answer. Right, right. It's a piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. uh, but it has been an important piece of the puzzle. So, uh, yes. The, he mentions the responsibility uh, of the West. He uh, mentions how much um, uh, we, the West uses compared to Beijing. Um, put that in context for me. Well, what I have observed is that there are many things uh, there are many things to be critical of when you look at the West. You've talked a lot about sure. that. Yeah, no, absolutely. So he's exactly right. However, uh, most of the environmental progress in the last hundred years has occurred in the West also. Right. So... There's that sort of balance, and um, I would have liked to have seen uh, – uh, uh, you're not seeing this kind of progress in the command and control states, China, Russia, and other states. Yeah. So I would have liked to have seen um, uh, some of those same what I call harsh truths uh, applied to them yeah. as well as to the Western world. Yeah. yeah. However um, – the criticisms were valid. Sure. It's, it's not so much what he said there, it's what he didn't say. Yes. Uh, you know, because I, I, th I thought it was strange, too, uh, that he did not have a harsh word for China, um, when in fact, uh, then, as you say, it's got a control and command economy there. That's right. And they, they have not been, they've not been pulling their weight. Uh, there was some threat uh, for the Beijing Olympics of um, canceling the Olympics because of their uh, environmental problems. Uh, is, is China making progress at all? Do you know if that's even a concern for them? I, I believe it is a concern for them, but I, I also believe that their um, representations can't be trusted based on history. Um, yeah. I think we learned some of that during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and very so, good, yeah. And so the political, uh, of course, the Western world has political motives. We all know that. But I think that the political motives, the political ends, uh, <laughs> drive the Chinese yeah. regime um, exclusively. Yeah. What what can this was in? By the way, it's it's good to point out that this apostolic exhortation was addressed to all men and women of goodwill. Yeah. So he's hoping for a universal reading of this, which is important to keep in mind. It wasn't directed towards the bishops, wasn't directed towards the people of God. It was directed towards all men and women of goodwill. And you know, I take from that that Pope Francis, the Holy Father, wants people to recognize. Um, 
the concerns of the Catholic Church when it comes to these matters, that we share with the uh, other members of the global society. We share a concern about our common home. And I think that uh, just my reading of him uh, is he wants to see us, he wants, I don't, he's not craven, I don't mean he's craven about this, but I think he likes to, he wants to see that the power elites of this world recognize that we have some overlap in our concerns. And environment is a, neat, a good place to go because this affects everybody. Exactly. And I, I, sort of the bottom line for me is I think it's an important and necessary exhortation. Yeah. yeah. I really do. I think it's, it's necessary. Um, um, however, there, are, there is context. Uh, there is this and that. And, and that's all part of our stewardship. I, uh, one of my most powerful memories is a project that I worked on in Mexico City yeah. uh, with a large automaker down there, and it went on for several years, but it, it, it impacted me maybe more than any other project because... Tell me the, more, yeah. The water at the beginning uh, left the industrial site and it went into a canal, and people on the other side were over there collecting the water, using it for yeah. something, yeah. Um, at least cleaning, right? And... I made a great friend down there, first of all. We went to the shrine at Guadalupe yeah. and many other places uh-huh. together. Had a wonderful time. But but we also, at the very end, uh, produced a water that was much better. Um, and it was this and that. Yeah. So we, we used technology. We produced a better water. But, but technology was not the only solution to that issue. It... Uh, Relationships with the surrounding community play into that? Yes, uh, they did, and I think that they improved in the course of that project, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Uh, but there was more to it than just the technology that we applied to making the water better. There were other, uh, there were other changes, right? Societal, spiritual yes. changes that had to be made in order for... for uh, a more just society where people had water that they could actually trust. And who took the initiative on that? Did the auto company take the initiative? Yes, Al, they did. The auto company took the initiative. I think that it was a time in the early 1990s when when there was a lot of social uh, impetus behind that to make that happen, yes. You know, I just realized the clock went out on me here. <laughs> Tom, let's talk later about this more. I, this is this is great stuff. And I think um, I'm always interested in people who work in the field and get their perspective on things like this. I'm, I do not know the technology here, but it's great talking with you. Thank you. Thanks. Likewise. Bye. Thomas Duran, we'll have him back with us. Support for this Ave Maria radio program comes in part by the non-for-profit St. Anthony Services. Are you shopping for mortgage products, Catholic investing, Catholic health, real estate, or estate planning? StAnthonyServices.org can help you find a Catholic professional for these needs. They regularly connect faithful citizens with faith-based professionals that share our Christian values. More information at StAnthonyServices.org or 877-LIFE-US1. Underwritten in part by this not-for-profit. Are you looking for peace? Longing for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? 
God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into the suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com and click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB. ChatGPT is the latest craze in artificial intelligence technology, and we've seen everybody from students to passengers to even teachers using it to assist in their work. In the last Ave Maria Radio Poll of the Week, we asked you if you think this is a good idea. And not surprisingly, the vast majority of you said no, you don't like where this is trending. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. The Catechism defines evangelization as the proclamation of Christ and His gospel by word and the testimony of life in fulfillment of Christ's command. But what does that look like in real life? It looks like the St. Paul Evangelization volunteers out on the street, sharing the good news with people in a non-confrontational way, handing out free sacramentals, listening to them, praying for them, teaching them, planting seeds, and letting the Holy Spirit make them grow. Visit StreetEvangelization.com and learn more so you can get involved in real-life evangelization. Father Benedict Rochelle. I must tell you that from what I observe from very young people, all of these blasphemers, all of these mockers are in for a tough time. Because the devil bites his own tail. And I find among young people a growing reverence and longing for God. I find a decline in the cynicism and skepticism around because it had to destroy itself. No one can live on being an enemy of God. It's too crazy. It's too absurd. It's too dark. It's too bleak. God is beautiful. God is holy. Why in the world mock God? The people you know and trust are on EWTN. Father Benedict Groeschel. I usually am operating on the gifts of the Holy Spirit when I don't feel well, even when I'm annoyed, when I'm down and out. During my recovery from the automobile accident, immense numbers of people wrote to me and sent me emails, 50,000, and they told me how helpful they thought my talks on EWTN were to them. I'm delighted, but I want you to know I'm nobody's fool. The talks that were helpful, the sentences that were helpful, the phrases that were helpful came from the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And the styrofoam packaging came from me. I did that. And styrofoam doesn't amount to very much. EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. From uh, September of this year until until May of next year, uh, the arm of St. Jude Thaddeus, venerated in Rome from ancient times, is on pilgrimage in the United States. It's making stops in 100 cities. Uh, In fact, it's in the Detroit area this week, 
And uh, my guest, Father Carlos Martins, is leading the tour. Uh, Father Carlos is a priest with the Companions of the Cross, a religious community with the charism and mission of evangelization. He's a custos uh, reliquarium, that is, a ecclesiastically appointed curator of relics, and he's leading this tour of the Relic of St. Jude. He's also director of Treasures of the Church, and you can learn more about his work at treasuresofthechurch.com, and you can also follow the St. Jude tour at Apostle of the Impossible. ApostleoftheImpossible.com. Father, thank you for joining me today. Certainly, it's a pleasure. Uh, let's identify uh, St. Jude, uh, that is to begin with. Uh, where does he uh, show up among the apostles? What do we know about him? Well, uh, so he is one of the twelve, uh, that is one of Christ's closest collaborators, uh, the word apostle means emissary or representative, and so the, these 12 were sent out to represent Christ. Uh, he, in particular, he is the brother of St. James the Last, who is also an apostle, and both of them, uh, the Church Fathers inform us, were sons of Mary of Clopas. Mm-hmm. And if her name is familiar to you, it is because... Uh, she is one of the three Marys at the foot of a cross during the crucifixion. Yes. Uh, the fathers inform us, Mary of Clopas was the blood sister of the Blessed Virgin Mary, making St. Jude and his brother James the Last first cousins of our Lord. Wow. So we, we have not only one of the, the, the twelve that, that he selected, but, but a blood relative. <laughs> That's really amazing. Uh, what, what was... Um... What do we know from his uh, apostolic mission uh, after the ascension of Jesus? Do we know where he went? Right. So after the ascension, the first place he ministered in was in the city of Edessa, within the country of Armenia. Uh, so in, in an area that that comprises what is today modern-day Turkey. Uh, and then he ministered into what is modern-day Iraq, modern-day Iran, and the the sources are split as to whether he met his demise within Persia, or modern-day modern Iran, or within the city of Beirut, within modern-day Lebanon. But regardless, the sources are unanimous in that he was murdered with his missionary partner, St. Simon the Apostle, uh, both were buried on site, and then in the 4th century, when Constantine built the original basilica on Vatican Hill to St. Peter, uh, the skeletons were moved from, uh, from, from their, the, the place of their, of their demise, where, where the tombs had been erected, and the shrine had been built. And the existence of the shrine is, is why we have those skeletons, because the, the, the remains were protected from... Uh, from rainwater and so forth. They were protected from decomposition. So Constantine placed them within the left transept of the basilica, and they remain exactly in that place today. Wow. Uh, now, how uh, how does it come about that uh, this relic of St. Jude Thaddeus gets to go uh, on tour? I mean, who, how, do you, how, does, how does the Church go about releasing uh, a relic of this stature? Sure. 
Well, uh, the authorities in Rome, uh, the Vatican, decided that there would be a tour of St. Jude. And, you know, St. Jude is the patron saint of hope. And right now, hope is exactly what the world needs. Um, we're coming off the effects of a, of a crippling pandemic. Uh, many people lost loved ones. Uh, some are still suffering from the effects of long COVID, uh, the economic effects of the disease. Many have lost their jobs or or, or, or just feeling the, the, the economic pinch of, of runaway inflation. Uh, and then there's kind of the, the social effects of the pandemic where, uh, you know, for years people were isolated from one another. And, and that left uh, deep scars on some folks. And so this, there is no better time for a pilgrimage of, of the, the patron of, of hopeless cases and, yeah. and uh, the one who gives hope. Now, so will, um, will the relic be uh, exposed in various parish churches, or are there other places you might be showing up? Uh, the, the events that are open to the public are, are in parish churches. Uh, there will be, along the journey, some prison stops, but those, for obvious reasons, wouldn't be open to the public. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the complete schedule, which is updated regularly as, as more places are, are fixed and added, is apostleoftheimpossible.com. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, when most people think of St. Jude, I think in America anyways, they think of the favor that was granted to Danny Thomas, uh, who, who ended up going to found St. Jude's Children's Hospital um, and I think that uh, this will also uh, stretch uh, our understanding of who uh, St. Jude is. And now, so I look on my uh, notes here, and I can see that during the Michigan visit, the relic is going to be available for veneration at the National Shrine of the Little Flower uh, in Royal Oak. It'll be uh, Immaculate Conception Parish in Lapeer. St. Andrew Parish in Rochester, the Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Detroit, and Divine Child uh, Parish in Dearborn. Do you know if there'll be added parishes from the uh, Archdiocese of Detroit? Uh, there will be no more added parishes. Okay. No, that schedule is, is complete. That's solid. Okay. So it begins again, Little Flower uh, Basilica in Royal, National Shrine of the Little Flower, Basilica in New York. That's October 13th. It's followed the next day by Immaculate Conception Parish in Lapeer, and then St. Andrew Parish in Rochester the next day, then the Cathedral of the Most Blessed Sacrament in Detroit, that again October 16th, and Divine Child Parish in Dearborn, October 17th. I, um, you know, I was an evangelical Protestant for many years, and this whole idea of relics seemed really bizarre to me. Um, I, I, I had no idea what in the world it meant for a relic um, to go on a, a nationwide tour like this. What is the Catholic theology of relics? And, and what ought we to expect from an encounter with uh, a major relic like this? Well, uh, relics are mentioned in Scripture repeatedly. The, the first mention occurs in the second book of Kings, where we hear about a, a man had died and was being buried in the same grave in which the prophet Elisha had already been buried, had previously been buried. And as they were lowering the man's body into the grave, his, his body inadvertently came into contact with the bones of Elisha. And it says the man came back to life and sprang to his feet. Yeah. 
in the New Testament, we hear about the hemorrhaging woman who, in the moment of light, was was given the awareness that all she had to do was touch the hem of Christ's garment, right. and she would be healed. And she touched it, and that's exactly what occurred. That's in Matthew's account. In Mark's account, he goes one step further. He says, and as many as touched that hem, they were all healed. Wow. So it wasn't Christ they touched, but it's clothing. Yes. And that was enough for the healing. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, in, in Acts 19, uh, Paul the Apostle was so holy, when he would walk down the street, they would touch him with rags and then place them on the sick. And it says two things would occur. Their diseases would leave them, and if they had any evil spirits, they would depart from them. Right? So we have we have the scriptural evidence there, and those three references I mentioned of of all three so-called classes of relics. Right? Traditionally, we we classify relics into three classes within Catholicism. First class relics are the body or any part of the body of a saint. Second class relics are anything a saint owned, such as an item of clothing. Third class relics are anything touched to a first, second, or another third class relic of a saint. And in terms of healing, there is no difference between the quote-unquote ability or power of a relic to effect the healing, to be used to bring about healing, uh, from first class to third class. Oh, really? That, yeah. that, that is all equal. Interesting. Uh, there is no difference. So, so whoever, what, whoever comes to this event, you are welcome to touch the, the, the large reliquary case in which the arm is housed, Whatever you touch to that, such as a rosary, your wedding band, a necklace, uh, that will become a third-class relic. Wow! Yeah, and so you can and you can take that with you. So, yeah, you can take it with you. Yeah, and, yeah. And, the, and the presence of Jude is is always tied to that object. So I'll tell you something. Out, we were one hour away from the first stop. This is a month ago. Uh, first stop on the tour was the city of Chicago, uh, Saint John Cantius Church. Uh, my phone rang, and it was reporting the first miracle of the tour. <laughs> and and the, the recipient was was a woman in Michigan. Uh, so who called me was her husband, Doug. Doug Edwards owns Edwards uh, Sign and Printing here in, in Michigan, yeah, in the city yeah, of Owasso. Right. Doug printed the banners for this tour. And, and he printed them free of cost. And, and uh, it's, an, it's a large amount of banners that I have. I mean, it, these would, I mean, typically I would spend $20,000 yeah. uh, to equip these kinds of banners. Uh, he wouldn't receive any payment. He wanted to do this for the, the apostle. And so when, when they were ready to be picked up, I, I told him, look, I'm on my way to your shop. I'm going to bring St. Jude with me. I had just arrived from Italy with the relic. I said, call whoever you like over to your shop, and you can have some up-close and personal time with the saint, uh, with your family and friends. Now, I, I knew that Doug's wife, Noreen, had had brain surgery 20 years prior, and it left her with very significant debilitation. Uh, the first surgery she had left her in a coma for 10 days. They did a second surgery to bring her out of that, uh, which it did. Thankfully, it worked. Uh, but she had to relearn to walk, relearn to talk, and uh, her capacity and abilities were severely limited uh, from that time. Uh, and so uh, some Sundays, for example, she would go to church, 
Um, many Sundays she couldn't, but even when, when she would, uh, it would wipe her out. Like yeah. that, that's all that she could do for the day. Uh, so when I arrived at the shop, I asked, uh, okay, which one of these people, wh- which one is your wife? I, I had never met her. And he said, well, Father, you know, Maureen is not having a good day today, uh, so she wasn't able to make it. I said, okay, we'll, we'll go to your home with, this, with the apostle. And he said, Father, we are so grateful for your offer, but Noreen is just having a really bad day today, and she wouldn't be up further than So I just asked the apostle, look, I, I need you to go, and I, I need you to touch Noreen and do something. And so the next day, Doug went home at noontime and, uh, to prepare lunch for he and his wife before he came back to work in the afternoon. She had dinner done. Uh, she, had, she had lunch done. It was laid out on the table something she had not done in years and years. All symptoms of her debilitation are gone. In Doug's words, and this this is the line, I will never forget the way he phrased this. He said, he's he's screaming at me on the phone, my wife is darting about the house like a young girl. Wow. Wow. Glory to God. That That is a wonderful... Wonderful testimony. And that, again, uh, talking here with Father Carlos Martins, um, priest of the Companions of the Cross, talking about his leadership of this uh, tour uh, of the relic of St. Jude Thaddeus, uh, which is going to be in the Detroit area. Just a, He reported an outstanding story of major healing. Um, how, and I, so I certainly believe that. Um, when people hear stories like that, how should they receive them? Do they receive them as a promise? Do they receive them as encouragement? Uh, what's, what, should, what should one expect from uh, visiting a major relic of this sort? Well, we've, every, only, we've only got about 30 seconds, well, too. So, Every time relics are mentioned in Scripture, there is always a healing. There is never not a healer. Right? So there, there is always grace conveyed. And touch is the way by which that healing comes about in all the scriptural accounts. Okay. So everyone is welcome. Uh, no one is not welcome. Uh, you don't need to be Catholic. You don't need to be a practicing Catholic. Just come and receive what the Lord wants to give you. Very good. Father, thank you so much. Okay. We need your help. Hello, I'm Marianne Koharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. Our ads feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy help. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. To donate, please find us at ProLifeAcrossAmerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. Connection with Teresa Tomio. We are given many gifts. Everyone is different. And yet when we embrace them, when we accept our gifts and use them as God wants them to be used, His will, not ours, 
And those crosses turn into gifts from which we can learn, grow, and who knows, maybe have an entirely different life than what we planned. Such as the case with me, I never in a million years expected to be in Catholic radio. Never even knew it existed. So the next time you're questioning or struggling, say, okay, God, what can I do with this? What am I supposed to do? Don't bury it. Don't put God in a box and see what he does with that gift, which sometimes comes in the shape of a cross. Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. I I went over the list of uh, sites for the uh, relic uh, in the Archdiocese of Detroit, but also uh, in the Diocese of Lansing, uh, St. Francis of Assisi Parish, parish, this Wednesday night, and then uh, St. Thomas Aquinas Parish in East Lansing this Thursday night. So, before it gets to the Archdiocese of Detroit, it'll be in the Diocese of Lansing. We'll have all that posted at AveMariaRadio.net. from the studios of Ave Maria Radio in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Al Cresta is ready for conversations of consequence. This is Cresta in the Afternoon. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Glad to be back with you. Today is the feast of St. John Henry Newman, one of the church's great modern thinkers. And of course, you don't get called saint because you're a great thinker. You become uh, called saint because of heroic virtue. So he was not only brilliant, but he was good. We're going to spend time with uh, theologian Michael Dauphiné from Ave Maria University and get to know uh, St. John Henry Newman, Benedict uh, XVI, or Joseph Ratzinger, uh, Benedict XVI, really loved John Henry Newman. And I have to say, he was uh, an incredibly important influence in my reopening my heart to the Catholic faith. So uh, I love uh, St. John Henry Newman. And he's, many people think of him as, uh, you might say, the father of the Second Vatican Council. In other words, his thinking had a lot to do with um, the the broader theological framework uh, of the Council. So we're going to take time to learn about this great saint uh, learn about what he contributed to uh, Catholic theology and our understanding of the faith. The development of doctrine, for instance, uh, is something that uh, he worked on, I think, without peer. Uh, so we'll talk about that. Um, we're also going to talk about his idea of the university. We're going to talk about the role of conscience. We're going to talk about faith and reason in St. John Henry Newman. And then we're also going to take time in this hour to talk with Dakota Wood uh, at the Heritage Foundation, Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs, 
And we're going to take a look at what this Hamas attack on Israel means. Does this change everything? It looks as though Israel is declaring that uh, she is at war. So we now have a, a bona fide war in the Middle East. Uh, just before I came on board uh, this hour, uh, there were roughly 900 and over 900 deaths, uh, Israeli deaths, and uh, they were still using the number of 560 uh, Palestinian deaths as a result of this uh, brutal attack. So all that's coming up in this hour, and stay with me. Right now, though, let's get today's headlines. Thanks, Al. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your Ave Maria Radio News. For Monday, October 9th, it's the Feast of St. John Henry Newman. Today's news brought to you by the Ave Maria Family of Funds at AveMariaFunds.com. More than 120,000 Palestinians have been displaced in Gaza as the war between Hamas militants and Israel rages on. That according to the United Nations. Former President of Minnesota's State Senate Sandy Pappas says she's keeping a close eye on the developments and is worried about what lies ahead. Palestinians kind of lose hope that there's ever going to be an end to the occupation. And so Hamas just takes advantage of that. And a lot of people are going to be killed, a lot of women and children. Um, a lot of civilians are going to get killed. The death toll so far has passed 1,100. Hamas, which launched the incredibly coordinated attack from Gaza over the weekend, has taken dozens of hostages, including some American citizens, according to Israeli authorities. Airlines across the country are canceling flights to Tel Aviv as the war rages on. American Airlines, United, and Delta Air have all suspended service as the U.S. State Department issued travel advisories for the region. The flight alert is citing a potential for terrorism and civil unrest. A vote to fill the House speakership is set for some time this week. Two candidates have stepped up to fill the role, including Ohio Republican Jim Jordan and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise, Louisiana. The votes could happen as soon as Wednesday, after two days of debate and meetings. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running for the White House as an independent. Kennedy Jr. was running for president as a Democrat, but told supporters in Philadelphia that he'll be switching parties. He began his run in the spring against President Biden. The 69-year-old says he wants to be free from taking sides. And over $1.5 billion is on the line for tonight's Powerball drawing. From your Avi Maria Radio.net news desk, I'm Steve Clark. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. This weekend, uh, Hamas launched a large-scale invasion against Israel. The uh, numbers are up, well, pushing 1,500, um, and that includes both uh, Palestinians who were killed and also Israelis who were killed. To help us understand the significance of this attack. We've asked Dakota Wood to join us. Dakota is Senior Research Fellow for Defense Programs at the Heritage Foundation, served for two decades in the Marine Corps. His current research focuses on the operational concepts and strategies of the U.S. Department of Defense. He originated and served as the editor for Heritage's Index of U.S. Military Strength, which is the only annual assessment available to the public of the status of America's military and its ability to carry out its functions. You can follow Dakota's work at heritage.org. Dakota, thanks. Uh, glad to have you with me again. 
It's a blessing to be with you. Thank, I wish we had something more positive to talk about. I mean, yeah. Mayhem in the Middle East is terrible. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. This this was uh, obviously timed to make us think of the Yom uh, Kippur War of 50 years ago. What is the message being sent by timing it that way? Well, I mean, the timing is part of it, but I think it's more um, a culmination of a lot of planning and, and you just get to a point uh, organizationally or in your planning enterprise that you have the capabilities to prosecute such a, an attack, and you think that the conditions are right for that. So if Israel wasn't or hasn't been so kind of divided internally, you know, judicial reforms right. and other aspects that they have really been focusing on, uh, if they were solid, united, you know, unified, would this particular anniversary have come and gone with no attack at all, right? Yeah. So, so I think it's a it's a confluence of capabilities, of support from Iran, uh, exploiting an opportunity they saw domestically within the Israel, and uh, saying we're going to do what we're going to do, which is clearly is what we've seen over the last seventy two hours. Yeah. Uh, does this attack reconfigure things in a serious way uh, yes. in, in the Middle East? Okay, tell me what changes as a result. Well, up to this point, uh, depending on, on where you come down on you know, the plight of the Palestinians or if they've created their own problems sure. or if the Israelis have been, you know, whatever. I mean, so where you come down on that, the Israelis have been subject to decades, literally, of attacks from rockets and missiles and kidnappings and assassinations and these sorts of things, mm-hmm. you know, suicide bombings and nightclubs. You know all the headlines sure. on that. And and for all the response that they've done, it's been remarkably restrained. I mean, if you could think of something like that happening in an American city or right. Berlin or wherever. And so it's been remarkably restrained. But this time, the atrocities are so gross, and, and they, they just break every possible taboo that you could think of. You know, the desecration of human remains, the parading of dead bodies, spitting on people yeah. on dead bodies as well. The massacre that occurred at the music festival goes on and on. Uh, Israel has just said enough is enough. And and we're not just going to push back. We are going to eliminate Hamas as as an entity, as a a security threat uh, to the United States. I mean, to um, to Israel itself. And the U.S. is standing with with, uh, Israel on that. So what we're going to see in the days ahead is a very carefully coordinated, methodically implemented plan uh, to first cordon Gaza, which has happened, right? Laying siege, no food, water, uh, electricity, or fuel entering that thing. And then they will methodically enter that and just start either killing or capturing uh, Hamas fighters and the leadership. And unfortunately, you're going to have civilians that are in the way of that onslaught. But if Israel doesn't do this, what it tells Iran and Hezbollah and other uh, terrorist entities <clears throat> is that you can do these things to Israel and not suffer, you know, consequences to that. They right. can't give in to the demands of the hostage takers uh, because that would make every Israeli citizen uh, a potential victim right. of, of being kidnapped and held hostage. So it's just it's brutality that has been brought on by Hamas, and we're going to see the logical and natural consequences of that. Uh, earlier today, a spokesman for the uh, Al Qassam Brigades, a branch of Hamas, 
uh, warned in an interview with Al Jazeera that they, they would begin killing one hostage mm-hmm. for each Israeli airstrike that lands in Gaza without forewarning. Now, whether they do this or not, you know, I don't know. But the very fact of that threat tells you yeah. that they've lost moral boundaries entirely. And don't they understand that this is going to damage? This is going to be just hell for uh, the, the people in Gaza to pay, uh, whether they were military or not. It, it is. I mean, and this is what differentiates terrorism from uh, good old ordinary conflict. And I hate you know, saying that war is ordinary, but the history of mankind you know, has seen this. But there were certain rules that were observed. You, know, you can capture your enemy, you put them in a prisoner camp, right. uh, and then when the conflict ends, you know, people get released and stuff. The brutality that we have seen by Hamas and the threat to execute hostages. And most of these hostages are children, young women, older women, you know, the aged and infirm, the people that they can get. You know, they've, they've cut the heads off of Israeli soldiers I and mean, all the horrors that we've seen in the, in the news headlines. So for them to threaten to start killing hostages places them in the criminal terrorist category right. Right. not a legitimate you know armed military force that uh, you know is controlled by um, a legitimate government and, and to the point about uh, the damage that will occur in Gaza itself they have no what we would call strategic depth you know it's only seven miles yeah. <laughs> uh, deep for the coastline it stretches about 20 miles so where is anybody going to escape to you know into the sea uh, and, and so again Israel cannot not attack. They have to do something. Yep. Uh, if we think about the numbers involved as a percentage of population, you know, these eight or nine hundred Israelis that have been killed on a population of nine and a half million, if we, if we apply that to the United States with a population of 330 million, you're talking in excess of 30,000 people wow. on a proportional basis. So from the mentality of Israel, it has to respond to this. And, and the mindset of Hamas to have brought this on to themselves. I just don't know, you know, really what they were thinking unless they feel, feel that this is their moment and others would rise up in opposition to Israel and somehow, you know, compel Israel to submit, and they're just not going to do that. Uh, this is a domestic uh, political question. Uh, those members of the Democratic Party who have been strong supporters of mm-hmm. uh, Palestinians, and again, for for political reasons— uh, right. Are they going to be on? Are they going to suffer discredit as a result of this Hamas attack? I think so, unless they change their tune. Yeah. You know, a couple yeah. of members of the Democratic Party have come out in support of the Palestinians. They kind of whitewash this, you know, idea of their atrocities, and they talk about the Israelis, you know, being invaders and occupiers and right. those sorts of things. And, and the general public, seeing the videos that are being circulated and the news reports. Uh, and all these things, you know, where, again, you have somebody in a pickup truck uh, with a partially clad body of a young female in the back, and they're just laying on top of them and their legs over them and kids oh. are spitting on the body and stuff. You, it, it's indefensible. You know, it's just it's indefensible. It, it's inhuman uh, what we've seen. And so people who try to champion the Palestinian cause uh, for whatever legitimacy they feel their argument has. Sure. Uh, there are certain boundaries that you just cannot cross, and I think that boundary, and I think that boundary has been crossed by Hamas 
and uh, members of the Democratic Party or anybody else to, uh, just has to acknowledge it to maintain any credibility at all. It, it um, I mean, this looks, we haven't seen this kind of stuff since ISIS. Right, yeah, it, it, that's a great example. If you remember the beheadings, yeah. um, the immolation, the burning of bodies, you know, they would drug some of their captives and put them in cages and then douse them with uh, fuel and set them on fire. And, and the world was horror-struck. Yeah. you know, by this. And, and we're seeing, um, you know, examples of the same sort of tactic used by these uh, Hamas fighters. Yeah. People just aren't going to, you just countenance, can't countenance that kind of activity. No, exactly. Uh, some people are saying that the road to Gaza runs through Tehran. What's Iran's role in this? Uh, Hamas and Hezbollah, uh, its bigger cousin uh, up north there in southern Lebanon, they would not be able to maintain viability as independent entities without some kind of external support. I mean, what does Hamas produce? You know, refrigerators right. and televisions? I mean, so they have to get their funding from somewhere. The weapons, they don't produce anything like that. So all the ammunition, the firearms, explosives, technical support, you know, moral and religious support from their you know point of view, and all, all that comes out of Iran. And so if there can be a clear linkage made between the attack perpetrated on Saturday and continues with the leadership in Iran, Israeli leadership will then have to decide how they're going to respond to that. So you can see a widening of the war to include kinetic strikes uh, by Israel against targets in Iran in some way. How does Iran respond to that? So there's the potential for this thing to get very, very ugly, uh, well beyond what we've already seen. Uh, the Biden administration recently chose to extend uh, Iran a lifeline of six billion dollars in funding. Mm -hmm. uh, how's that? Does that have anything to do with this? I think in two ways. One, it signals that in spite of Iranian behavior over the past few decades, you know, since the the mullahs took over, um, they still get rewarded in some way. It's supposed to incentivize better behavior when Iran's history doesn't show that they um, will go, go down that path. The other thing is, and this is what Secretary Blinken and others have said, that this money uh, cannot be tied to the use of weapons and those sorts of things because there are certain restrictions on it. But, but like energy, money is fungible. Right. So if the Iranian government wants to buy food and medicine for its people, and that money that they're using for food can't be used to buy bullets, or something to give to these terrorist organizations. If you free up $6 billion to use for food and medicine, then the Iranians can use the funds that they directly control yep. for explosive and bullets and these other sorts of things. So it enables the behavior that we've seen Iran, you know, following or executing over many, many years and would indirectly then enable Iran to continue supporting organizations like Hamas. Yeah. Uh I was curious. Uh, Hezbollah and Iran are Shiite, Shiite brand of Islam. Uh, mm -hmm. how, how are they supporting the Hamas, which is uh, again soon? Well, it's one of these uh, the enemy of my enemy. Yeah. So yeah. If, if the greater evil uh, is uh, are the Jews yeah. and the Israelis, then you'll support anybody you want to to try to cause them harm. Gotcha. Dakota, thanks. Very helpful. And we'll talk Great. again. Okay, take care. Dakota Wood is a senior research fellow for defense programs at the Heritage Foundation. You can follow his work at heritage.org. I'm Al Cresto.
Why does marriage require complete fidelity between spouses? The Catholic Catechism states that the intimate union of marriage is a mutual self-giving of two persons ordered to the welfare of their children, which requires that there be an unbreakable union between them. The deepest reason is found in the fidelity of Christ to his church. Through the sacrament of matrimony, the spouses are able to represent that fidelity and witness to it. For these reasons, the spouses can be nothing but completely faithful to one another. Marriage is such a deep, personal union of giving oneself to the other that it cannot, the Catechism asserts, be an arrangement until further notice. As difficult as it may seem to retain this indissolubility for a lifetime, it is made possible by God's irrevocable love in which the couple shares and which will support them through their marital journey. This is Peggy Stanton, and this has been the Order of Malta's Minute with the Catechism. It's time for Family Man with Dr. Gregory Popcha. Does your family make regular time to work, play, talk, and pray together every day? Research shows that when Catholic families create strong, consistent daily rituals for working, playing, talking, and praying together, they set the stage for teaching their kids Christian attitudes toward work, leisure, relationships, and faith. If it's true that values are more caught than taught, family rituals are what makes a Christian worldview truly contagious. That's why the rite of family rituals is such an important part of the liturgy of domestic church life. It helps families come together as strong domestic churches and learn what it means to be intentional disciples at home and in the world. To discover more ways your family can celebrate the liturgy of domestic church life, check out the newest editions of Parenting with Grace and visit CatholicCounselors.com. I'm Dr. Greg Popchak, but you can call me Family Man. To discover more ways faith can enrich your life, visit CatholicCounselors.com. The Wisdom of Mother Angelica. I told him about the woman who came to me and said her two children hadn't spoken to each other for two years. Their grandma died and she was very wealthy. She left half to each one. She said they're arguing over a commode. She said inlaid. Can you imagine being in hell? And somebody saying to you, what are you here for? EWTN. Live Truth. Live Catholic. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. This program is brought to you in part by Charity Mobile, a proud partner of Ave Maria Radio for over 15 years. Charity Mobile is the pro-life cell phone company and has sent nearly $2 million to thousands of pro-life charities. 4G LTE coverage is available nationwide, and 5% of your monthly plan price goes to your favorite pro-life charity. A video introduction is available at CharityMobile.com. Charity Mobile, everyday living, effortless giving. CharityMobile.com. Cresta in the Afternoon is underwritten by the following nonprofit organization. Real Estate for Life. Buying or selling your home or business property? Real Estate for Life can connect you with one of 1,400 pro-life real estate agents around the world. When Real Estate for Life receives a referral fee, they donate 70% to Ave Maria Radio and Human Life International. More information at realestateforlife.org or 877-LIFE-US1. 
That's realestateforlife.org. Good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. Today is the feast of St. John Henry Newman, one of the church's great modern thinkers. And I like to always point out that uh, as great a thinker as St. John Henry Newman was, he is called St. John Henry Newman because he was also somebody who uh, formed heroic virtue. So he's not only brilliant, but he was good. And joining me right now to talk about the life and thought and spirituality of St. John Henry Newman, we've got Dr. Michael Dauphiné, who serves as the Father Matthew Lamb Professor of Catholic Theology and co-director of the Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal at Ave Maria University. He also hosts the Catholic Theology Show podcast and enjoys uh, teaching uh, C.S. Lewis, the Scriptures, uh, anything on Aquinas. He's a grateful revert to the Catholic Church, and he's been married to his beloved wife, Nancy, for almost 30 years. His uh, newly authored, co-authored book, Wisdom from the Word, Biblical Answers to Ten Questions About Catholicism, was uh, just published by Word on Fire Press. Michael, thanks for joining me again. Well, thanks, Al, for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be able to talk a little bit about uh, the life and thought and legacy of St. John Henry Newman. Did he play any role in your uh, return to the Catholic faith? Uh, I think Newman was one of those people that I began to look to after my conversion. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, especially as I started studying theology, uh, I remember people just saying, you have to read his essay on the development of doctrine. Right. You know, and and I remember reading it, and uh, Newman kind of ends up writing about almost everything, (laughs) almost every topic he ends up writing something about, and uh, he's able to express it in such a clear style that is, I don't know any other author that is at once so deep in the mind of the scriptures and the fathers, and at the same time so contemporary. The yeah. issues that Newman were, was dealing with were the same issues that we deal with today. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm amazed, amazed by him, just as a stylist. I mean, he's just a beautiful writer uh, in English. Um, and, of course, as you say, his, uh, his thinking touches uh, really all areas of life. Uh, he's master of the fathers, the scriptures, but also uh, the contemporary world of his day. He said that, um, let me just read a quote here. Uh, he talks about uh, the evils of the present day, and in his mind, the one great mischief, I'm quoting him now, the one great mischief I have from the first opposed uh I have resisted to the best of my powers the spirit of liberalism in religion. Given how important uh, an opponent that was to his thinking, what did he mean by liberalism in religion? Yeah, so that was kind of a fascinating time in his own life, um, because that was at the end of his life, uh, mm-hmm. and Leo XIII had made him a cardinal, and so he gave his Biglietto address yeah. on receiving the, his cardinal hat and becoming a cardinal. Um, he... And he, and he said that, right? He dedicated his whole life to resisting the spirit of liberalism in religion. Yeah. And I think we can think about it in, in two ways. Um, he, he would describe the spirit of liberalism as fundamentally the idea that there is no truth in religion. Uh, so, in a way, religion is only about freedom to believe whatever you want, 
but it's not about the freedom to commit to any particular truth. And uh, and he think thought he thought that that would leave us in a spirit of isolation. Yep. And without any agency, right? And that ultimately, of course, it was false. And I think in his own life, he describes having a, uh, in his own discovery of religion, and his own discovery of, of the Christian faith in, in his teens, that he had this, what he would describe later as a dogmatic principle, that there was truth, and the truth was knowable, and that to become a Christian meant to believe that Jesus Christ was Lord, right? That Jesus was the Son of God, uh, that he died on the cross and rose again for our salvation and sent us the Holy Spirit, right, for the yeah. forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. And that these truths were what frees, or were what free us from our current state and basically free us for God so we can then learn how to know and love God better. And what Lewis saw was, sorry, what um, what um, Newman saw that was going on was this tendency in this spirit of the Enlightenment was to basically make all religions the same, yeah. which he knew, he saw in a way, meant that makes all religions meaningless. Exactly. And if religions are the same and meaningless, and if they have no real truth, then they won't ultimately be able to guide us. They'll merely will be kind of like a taste, a preference. Um, an emotional state that they can give us, but then religion ultimately isn't true. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing uh, that he 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 pointed out that there are those uh, in his day that believed one creed is as good as another, uh, and that's certainly true in our own day as well. So this is an ongoing problem, at least since nineteenth uh, century uh, Western thought, and of course you can push it back even before that. Um, this is uh, this has a relationship also to the moral life, and what uh, jo- uh, Joseph Ratzinger and Car- uh, Benedict the Sixteenth talked about as the uh, dictatorship of relativism. How does it become if you have this idea that all creeds are as good as one another? They're interchangeable. None of them deal with objective reality. Um, how does that lead to dictatorship? Is the absence of objective truth mean that uh, the way for communities to organize themselves is simply through an act of power rather than truth? Yeah, I think that's very that's very well put. And it, there's a bit of a paradox because people think often yeah. that by getting rid of religious truth, we will be free. Yeah, that's right. From the oppression of religious authorities, uh, but it's in a way naive because we are always under other authorities, um, right? We have political authorities. Yeah. Yeah. There are always going to be people in power, and ultimately the only thing that can check power is truth. And the only thing that can um, check, say, political power is a truth that goes beyond the politics, Mm-hmm. Right, a truth that goes not just up to the king or up to the president or up to the democracy, right? But a truth that is higher than that. And it's interesting, even like you know Martin Luther King, when he criticized from his letter to a letter from a Birmingham jail, um, he would 
um, he appealed to the natural law yes. that Aquinas and Augustine discovered, and he said it, that natural law of God is higher than the law of the state. And so if we can't appeal to something higher, then we fall into the dictatorship of relativism. Yeah, 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 very good. Uh, let's talk about his uh, essay on the development of doctrine. Uh, this was a concept that was completely, uh, it never occurred to me to think along these lines, and it helped me to see that Catholic uh, faith, that th- elements well, you look back into the ancient church, and uh, you see certain things, and then you look at the Catholic Church 1,900 years later, and you see all kinds of strange things that you thought you didn't see in the ancient church. And Newman's essay on the development of doctrine helped me to see that, in fact, uh, as the church thinks on things, um, it's it deepens one's faith, so that at first glance, you may not recognize in you know a modern devotion or a modern uh, doctrine, um, what was implicit, uh, but but underneath, uh, back in the first century, uh, how did he develop this idea? What what struck him about this? Well, in part, he was trying to answer a very simple question, and this was in part because he was struggling as an Anglican to stay an Anglican. Uh, right, the Anglican Church is the Church of England, yeah. uh, that part of Protestantism that stayed in continuity um, in England. And he was trying to see whether or not Anglicanism, whether he could, could still hold Anglicanism to be true. And he tried to then ask himself, he says, well, the, he thought that Anglicanism offered the purity of faith, that kind of Protestantism, and especially in its Anglican dimension, um, which is unique, held the purity of the early church, yeah. and that the Catholic Church, the Church of Rome, had corrupted it, uh, right? And so that was his basic view as an Anglican. So then he began to wonder, wait a second, are the teachings of the apostles, the teachings of the early church, are they the same as the Catholic Church today? And so this is where he comes up with the idea of development, and it's really just a phenomenon, of course, that other people had noticed, right, is that over time things develop. But what Newman saw is that things develop in order to remain the same. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, he says that, like, in heaven it's otherwise, but in our world to be perfect is to change. And so there's this odd element that the teachings of the Church are the same as they were in the first and second century. They're the same as they are today but because they have developed in response to new questions. Mm-hmm. So most famously, right, the doctrine of the Trinity gets articulated more specifically, um, where, you know, in the Nicene Creed and in later creeds, we, we would speak about, right, you know, the God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, mm-hmm. consubstantial with the Father, right? Those are words that are not in Scripture, but they allow us to maintain the scriptural revelation. Right. And so what Newman recognized was that truths, there's an element in a way of the kind of, and and at the center of that book, he would say the heart of Christianity is the incarnational principle. That what's the central idea that makes Christianity? It's that God became man in Jesus Christ, right? But that if God became man in Jesus Christ, that also means then 
that history matters. Right. Because, you know, that the ongoing history of the church matters and is real. So it's not merely just repeating what Jesus says. It's trying to re-articulate the message of Jesus um, in response to new questions and new issues. And therefore, that sometimes then develops new answers. Again, always trying to say the same thing. And so I think one of the things that's really fascinating is in the 19th century, there were other ideas floating around that really became known as modernism, which is that the Catholic teaching evolves over time. Right. It changes. Yeah. Whereas what Newman said, no, it develops. It develops in order to remain the same. Michael, hold it there. Uh, we'll come back and, and let's go make that distinction again. And what true development is, as opposed to uh, so-called evolution of doctrine. My guest is Dr. Michael Dauphiné from Ave Maria University. We're talking about St. John Henry Newman, whose feast day is today. Underwritten in part by the following nonprofit. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things you don't believe in? There are options. You can join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based health-sharing community. Plus, Solidarity HealthShare can save you money with prices starting as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save. 844-398-9399. That's 844-398-9399. It's not over. Unplanned pregnancies still happen. I'm Marian Kuharski, Director of Pro-Life Across America. In my 30-plus years, I've never seen such a concerted attempt to silence our efforts and at a time when it's most needed. There's a powerful effort to prevent and block our pro-life messages. Our billboards, social media, and digital ads are all impacted. Our messages feature a hotline number connecting callers with more than 3,000 pregnancy support centers across America, offering alternatives to abortion, free ultrasound, and pregnancy assistance. Babies' lives are being saved. The need still exists. It really does. And Pro-Life Across America needs your help. Please find us at prolifeacrossamerica.org. Did you know I could suck my thumb before I was born? Yep, we all started small. ChatGPT is the latest craze in artificial intelligence technology, and we've seen everybody from students to passengers to even teachers using it to assist in their work. In the last Ave Maria Radio Poll of the Week, we asked you if you think this is a good idea, and not surprisingly, the vast majority of you said no, you don't like where this is trending. Thanks to everybody who voted in that poll. If you want to vote in our new poll, go to AveMariaRadio.net and scroll down to the Poll of the Week. Connection with Teresa Tomio. Parents in a town just 45 minutes outside of Dublin have banned together to enforce a smartphone ban for their children in elementary school. It was just the striking results of the rising anxiety, depression, and everything we noticed of having a mobile phone, especially among young children. And according to this article, the results have been extremely positive in terms of less anxiety among the children closer bonds being formed with the families, more time spent together outside with kids playing and actually reading. I mean, this is such common sense. All too often, I think it's it's hard for parents and grandparents to resist, right? Well, mom and dad, everybody has one. It's really incredible, the simple effort of parents coming together and saying, you know what, we need to do something. 
Catholic Connections, Teresa Tomio. Weekdays, 9 a.m. Eastern, on EWTN Radio. Can smelling certain scents improve our memories? I'm Chuck Gatica, and this is Journey Strong. When my wife and I had COVID in late 2020, we both lost our sense of taste and smell. In my case, I continued to have issues with my sniffer for a few months. Then I read a study that suggested smelling bold scents could help restore the connection between the nose and the brain. Sure enough, smelling fresh lemons every day seemed to help me recover. No wonder I love the aroma of lemons and incense. Another study, though, indicates that older folks who smelled fragrant essential oils got better sleep and improved memory and thinking. Brain scans confirm they got better. Be careful, though. Some essential oils can be harmful if inhaled over time. Always consult your doctor. Side note, from Genesis 2 to Revelation 18, there are more than 200 references to perfume, odor, and smell. For more on the study, look for our Journey Strong tab at the homepage of AveMariaRadio.net. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We are uh, really celebrating the life and thought of St. John Henry Newman, one of the church's greatest uh, modern thinkers. And uh, leading us in this is uh, Dr. Michael Dauphiné, who, uh, again, is the uh, professor, Matthew Lamb professor, Father Matthew Lamb professor of Catholic theology and co-director of the Aquinas Center for Theological Renewal at Ave Maria University. We were talking before the break, uh, Michael, about uh, Henry New- John Henry Newman's development of doctrine and how it's not the same thing as what some people call the evolution of doctrine, that with uh, Newman's uh, development of doctrine, we're looking at things that change in order to stay the same. They don't mutate into something they once weren't. So talk to me about what distinguishes um, development from evolution. Well, if we go back to that original idea that we mentioned earlier, is this dogmatic principle yeah. that religion is about truth, then the truth that religion offers, that Christianity offers, I really should say, for Newman, is just a distinct one, right? When God becomes man, right, in Jesus Christ, that's a definitive fullness of revelation. Yes. And it's interesting, by the way, uh, Pope Benedict in 2010, when he came at the a beatification homily. Uh, Pope Benedict actually went to London to celebrate this. It was very unique. Um, most canonizations, beatifications are in Rome. Uh, and as people may know, Pope uh, Francis canonized uh, uh, Newman in um, 2019. But Benedict, when he, in 2010, he said that to begin with, right, we have to look at his, uh, Newman's understanding of the objective reality of Christian revelation as handed down in the Church. Yeah. So almost all of Newman's understanding is a way of understanding this idea that uh, Christ gives us the fullness of revelation and salvation. So, so for instance, other ideas do mutate and change over time. You know, is, you know, whether or not that's like the idea of communism or the idea of Newtonian physics or the idea of... Um, Right, a- any human ideas, you know, the idea of, um, you know, the, the, you know, the Roman Empire, right? These different things they they change, they evolve, they 
um, become what they are, and then they tend to corrupt. So he thought that Christianity, because it was not man, it wasn't you know our human solution to human problems, but it was God's solution to our problems. If it was worth being, that if it was worth anything, it had to be something that was definitively true. But then the question is, how could it stay true over two thousand years? And and his eventual answer is that if it gets inserted into history, then like other ideas, it will also grow. You know that as human beings apply their minds as saints and scholars and pastors and mothers and fathers embody this great tradition and live according to it, it will also grow over time. So you will get the development of devotions, the development of creeds, right? Um, and all this other flourishing and flowering of right, Christianity in the patristic age, in the medieval age, and in the Renaissance and, and contemporary periods, right? We have had such a flourishing and flowering yes. of the faith, because as it enters into history, it transforms minds, but it doesn't shut down our minds. Right. Right. But what Newman said was that, wait a second, is either then, if we're evolving, then we've lost the original idea, right? Mm-hmm. Or um, the faith can maintain its fundamental integrity, and that's because its fundamental integrity is rooted to the creedal faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. So now, right now we have this um, a lot of discussion about the synod on synodality coming up, and uh, I don't know what's going to happen there. Uh, I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens there. But there are some people who are very fearful that there will be those who will try to argue that Catholic doctrine has developed regarding the nature of the priesthood. And so now we have a situation where it's time to uh, no longer uh, limit the priesthood, reserve it to um, males, but that somehow we've developed and we should um, welcome women into the priesthood. Now, this is, you know, directly contradictory to what St. John Paul II taught and Paul VI taught. Um, what, are they, how, what are they doing with this idea of—obviously, uh, they're, they're talking about developing, but they certainly don't mean what you've been meaning by developing, right? Yeah, there's, a, um, there's actually a book that was recently published by um, uh, Word on Fire Academic Press by Matthew Levering, and it's called Newman on Doctrinal Corruption. <laughs> and— what, what, what he shows is that Newman, when he was speaking about doctrinal development, is actually arguing that the Catholic faith is the same. So that basically, if you, it's like if Athanasius woke up in, in 1850, he would find the Catholic Church his church. Yeah. You know, yeah. he wouldn't go for an Arian church. He wouldn't go for a Donatist church or, you know, um, whatever. He would, he would find the Catholic Church as his true church. And so... The goal of it is to try to, how do we avoid doctrinal corruption? Because he saw doctrinal corruption as impacting the Protestant churches. That was Newman's understanding, is that they had actually lost certain things that were part of the original patrimony of the Church. And I just think a lot of people just, they think about development in earthly terms. Yes. So development is like, well, let's think of what we can do, and then can we say it's a development, whereas what Newman was doing was actually the opposite, was trying to show that it's the same. And so we would argue that there needs to be constancy, uh, like there has to be a constancy of type, 
right, that there's a kind of fixity of doctrine over the years. Um, you know, like the Trinity's been remarkably kind of consistent. Yes. You know, it only is three. <laughs> never four. It's never two, right? right you know, right. It's, it's actually remarkably consistent. Um, yeah. You got three persons, so I think one we need God. To, you know, yeah, exactly. One God. And, um, you know, the fundamental, you know, moral teachings, again, are have, have been consistent. So it doesn't mean that there can't be particular shifts at time in terms of, like, our relationships to political um, societies. Right. right. Uh, but I think this idea that the Church, that, that you could change um, kind of fundamental understandings of the priesthood, um, and and call those things um, you know developments would be to misunderstand what Newman was doing. Um, let me jump to uh, his spirituality uh, here. Um, he had a he had a very rich uh, inner life. Uh, he did um, uh, he wrote some poetry. He uh, he was um, a man who. I think, again, I mentioned his style, his writing style. Um, it shows that he had a strong aesthetic um, sensitivity. Uh, how would he understand Catholic spirituality uh, as opposed to the evangelical spirituality that he was raised with? Well, the one thing is his sac his under his spirituality was very deeply sacramental. Yes, um, that it there was nothing wrong with the felt emotional like presence of Jesus Christ as Lord and friend, um, but that was not the grounds of his spirituality. Right? The ground of his spirituality, as he put it one time in one of his letters, he actually wrote this: "For years past, my only consolation personally." has been in our Lord's presence in the tabernacle. Yeah. Right? So his spirituality is fundamentally Eucharistic. Right? It has that deep sense of moving from, I think, the strength of the evangelical trust in God um, to then the confidence that God is truly present with us in the Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah, this, so this is central uh, to his spirituality. Um, let me jump to another area uh, of his thinking, and that's the area of conscience. Um, it, it's, he's often quoted as writing that conscience is the aboriginal vicar of Christ. And some people use that phrase to negate the objective truth of magisterial teaching. Um, what does he mean? Obviously, he's not pitting conscience against magisterium. What does he mean by aboriginal yeah. vicar of Christ? Well, I think this goes back to an understanding that nature and grace are not in competition with one another, mm -hmm. right? Faith and reason are not in competition with one another. So Newman, in his uh, Grammar of Ascent, he actually makes the case that there's a kind of natural religion of conscience in which we try to follow what we believe to be true. Yeah. And based upon that natural religion of conscience, we could even come to discover that there must be a God who is the source of our conscience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what he's really saying there is, on the natural level, we already find ourselves, we discover a moral law, and we recognize ourselves bound not only to the moral law, but to the Creator who gave the moral law. 
And then what he says, if that's the case on the natural level, then on the supernatural level, right, when Christ then comes and reveals the law to us, reveals the new law in his church, he's not doing anything in a way that goes against our natural dispositions. That's right. Right. So it's because we already have the natural character of morality and obedience and conscience that then when we discover the creator of the universe meeting us in Jesus Christ, right, it's not in any way violent to our souls, but it's actually elevating that highest freedom. Mm, and then Newman would always emphasize the idea, and he wrote a long book called The Apologia Pro Vita Sua, right, a yeah. defense of his own life, that yeah. that it was in his own conscience that he came to believe that the Catholic faith was true, and therefore then submitted himself to that truth. But it wasn't as though he was surrendering his conscience or giving it up. It's that That's what, in a way, conscience is for, <laughs> is to be able to make the claim that I, I believe, right, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Newman would say when he became a cardinal, he took as his cardinal motto, core et core loquitur, heart speaks to heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that animates his preaching, his writing, and also this idea that in our conscience, yes, we do speak to God, but God speaks to us in Jesus Christ, right? And then we can speak back to him with our true self, yes. right? Our true freedom. And, and that's the full exercise of our human conscience. Very good. Uh, we're running out of time. We've got about a minute and a half here, Michael. Um, he suffered uh, for his convictions. Um, when he re was received into the Catholic Church, it wasn't an entirely smooth ride. What kind of bumps did he have to get over? What kind of hurdles? What kind of sufferings did he endure? Well, during that time in, in 1850, when, when he or 1845, when he converted uh, in England, he, had to, he immediately had to resign from Oxford as yeah. a professor. Yeah. Uh, he had to, he get, you could not be a Catholic and teach at Oxford, so he lost that. Some of his family members that were very close uh, really were no longer close to him. So he kind of lost the whole world, and he was one of the most prominent Anglican uh, professors and priests. Yeah at Oxford. And so he lost all of that. Um, and then he basically had to go to seminary in Rome and uh, become a priest uh, in, in Rome. And so the there was a time where, in a certain sense, the Anglicans had not, wanted nothing to do with him, and the Catholics were maybe a little suspicious. Suspicious of him, yeah. yeah. Um, although I will say that um, Archbishop Manning asked him in 1850, so very soon afterwards, to become the rector and founder of the Catholic University of Ireland. So there was also, of course, because of a lot of reasons, um, uh, 20 years later that ended up failing. So Newman was really a uh, heroic, uh, heroic, faithful witness to Christ who was willing to follow Christ even when it cost him personally and professionally. Michael, thanks so much. Very, very helpful. And uh, we'll talk right, again. Thank you. Dr. Michael Dauphiné, I'm Al Cresta. Living the Beatitudes with Father Bjorn. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. We get what we look for. St. Therese of Lisieux has an interesting insight on this. Once in a discussion over the possibility of avoiding purgatory, the future saint told another member of her community, Sister Maria Fabronia, that God was more father than judge. And in this discussion, debate, she finally took the liberty of saying to the other sister, if you look for the justice of God, you will get it. The soul will receive from God exactly what she desires. 
Are we full of wounds and anger and hurt, and do we want to inflict that on other people? Are we allowing God to heal us? If we receive His mercy, we have to show it to others. The Beatitudes are the heart of Jesus' message. Let's be transformed by them. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. For more about the Beatitudes, visit EWTNRC.com. The following is a medical moment. Hi, I'm Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo. Can you imagine receiving a phone call from your child's roommate while they are away at college telling you that your son or daughter had an accident and has been admitted to the emergency room, but they don't know anything more? In a panic, you call around the hospitals asking about your child. However, instead of being helped, you are told they cannot share information with you because of HIPAA privacy. You are terrified, worried sick for your child. How do you prevent this situation from happening to you? A healthcare durable power of attorney. This legal document will appoint you as their healthcare agent, granting you the rights to all information in an emergency and to make medical decisions on their behalf. As soon as you are able to, you need your child to sign these documents in order to prevent the nightmarish situation we've just discussed. They must be signed, stored, and easy to access so that you can have them at your fingertips the moment disaster strikes. This medical moment brought to you by MyLifeAngels.com. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Thanking you for being with me today. And let me congratulate another member of the EWTN radio family. I'm talking about Divine Mercy Radio, serving the Raleigh-Durham area of North Carolina. They are celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. And let me say congratulations to Melissa Savage and Keith Flannery there and their team at Catholic 540 AM. Again, congratulations from all your friends at EWTN. I'm Al Cresta, and let me say that you can go to AveMariaRadio.net and get follow-up information on the uh, the schedule for the relic of St. Jude Thaddeus, which is uh, in the state of Michigan now, but it's going throughout the country. Uh, you can also follow up on information uh, we had on the uh, attack uh, in Israel. We'll have follow-up uh, information there in the Cresta Guest Archives. And uh, we'll also have follow-up information, of course, on St. John Henry Newman there. Uh, we have wonderful articles on Laudate, Laudate Deum, so check that out, too. Cresta in the Afternoon is a co-production of Ave Maria Radio and EWTN Radio and carried across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. To follow up on any of the guests or information presented on today's program, visit the Cresta Guest Archive at AveMariaRadio.net. That's A-V-E-M-A-R-I-A, radio.net. To listen to this or any other edition of Cresta in the Afternoon, visit the audio archives at AveMariaRadio.net. Or to order a CD of the program, call 734-930-4506 or email orders at AveMariaRadio.net. That's 734-930-4506 or orders at AveMariaRadio.net.